If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. Brian McClanahan Show, episode 603. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook. Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Of course, you're going to get great deals on courses if you're on my email list, so watch out for those. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Throw a few pennies my way. Get my books wherever books are sold online, the latest two being The Jeffersonian Tradition and Southern Scribblings. Awesome books. You're going to want those. You can also support the show by clicking on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. As always, though, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. That's a great way to help make the program better and let people know you like it by sharing these things around on social media. That's really important. If you share the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you share your stuff, whatever social media account you've got, Share the podcast around. Comment on YouTube. I do like that. It helps bump the algorithm. People, more comments, more people look at this stuff. So um, that's always a plus too. All right. I mentioned this week we're going to be talking about history, and today is the day. This Wednesday we're talking about history. So I want to actually read a little bit of a chapter from a book that everyone should get if you can. And the title, I'm, I'm going to put it up here. The title of the book is Historical Consciousness, and it's written by John Lukash. So this is a really good book, and um, a couple of, of um, things need to be said about this. And I mentioned that this week. There is no historical objectivity. It doesn't exist. And Lukash, I'm going to talk about that in this particular chapter. So and all the historians we've talked about, whether it's you know Heather Cox Richardson or Stephanie McCurry or David Blight or all these leftists, Kevin Cruz, whoever it is, the Twitter Historian Brigade, all of these leftists hide behind a supposed veil of objectivity. And what they believe is that their word is the last word. And actually, Lukash gets into that. There is no last word in history. History is always open to interpretation. Why? Because people are the center of the process. And you cannot divorce the political leanings of all these people from their history. And I, I'll use an example, and maybe I'll talk about this piece uh, in, a, in a future week on a podcast. So I might do it next week. And I bring up Heather Cox Richardson because I just did that, that uh, podcast on her interview with Joe Biden. But she has a Substack account where she clearly makes a lot of money. I think she makes, uh, people have estimated, six figures on her, on her Substack account subscribers. But she did a, wrote a piece the other day about uh, Grover Cleveland and the Democrats. And uh, it was... An interesting piece because the, the whole point of it was to get into how this idea the Democrats ruin the economy, the Republicans save it, came out of the Cleveland administration in the 1890s. 
this is true in some ways. There's some there's some truth in what she does in this particular piece. But what she misses is attaching the current Democrats to the Democrats of the 1890s. The Democrats of the 1890s would in no way be the Democrats of the 2020s. It, they wouldn't support anything Heather Cox Richardson believes in. Anything. And I think that's the key to all of this. So she's she's saying things that are true, but she's leaving out some important things because you're you're drawn to a conclusion that if you're a Democrat today, it's just as the Republicans do this. The Republican Party is the party of Abraham Lincoln. The Republican Party is the party of Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass said, I would always be a Republican as a black man. So therefore, black people today should support the Republican Party. It's the same kind of historical revisionism that Cox Richardson is engaging in with Grover Cleveland. Somehow, Grover Cleveland, as a Democrat, should be supported by Democrats because he's this malign guy, and uh, you know, Democrats are saving the economy. And yeah, the Republicans are wrecking the economy. The Republican Party, though, hasn't changed. The Democrat Party, though, has changed. In 1892, the Democrat Party was still a conservative party. By 1896, it's not. You have one last gasp for it in 1904 with Alton Parker, but that's it. In fact, the Democrats bolted, the conservative Democrats bolted in 96 and formed the National Democratic Party. So she's telling you half-truths. And somehow, just like the Republicans do, trying to attach themselves to this great grand old party and look at this, we've been persecuted by the Democrats. We've always been the party of minorities, whatever it is. The, uh, the Democrats try to do the same thing at times when it suits them. That's where you get into the last word in historical objectivity. Heather Cox Richardson is a leftist, and she's going to write history that favors her idiotic worldview. That's what she does. Now, you could say that everybody does that. Look, if you want to, if you want to read a history book, find out who wrote it first. And what I mean by that is, who is this person? What are their political leanings? Because generally, they're going to write a book that favors those political leanings. I was taught this at an early age as a, histo as a history student. Find out who the historian is who wrote the book first. If the guy's a, a rabid Marxist, guess what you're going to get? If the, if the woman's a rabid feminist, guess what you're going to get? If the person's a conservative, guess what you're going to get? If the person's a Lincoln lover, guess what you're going to get? For example, Alan Gelzo. Alan Gelzo worships Abraham Lincoln. And he wrote a book about Lee. Guess what you're going to get? Now, he even says it at the beginning. I am a Yankee. And so he wrote a Yankee's biography of Robert E. Lee. And it shows that's exactly what it is. It's not a good biography. It's a Yankee's biography. It's how a Yankee would write a biography of Robert E. Lee. But you see, that's okay. But it's not okay to be Douglas Southall Freeman and write a biography of Robert E. Lee when you're Father was an important part of the, of the Confederate veterans, and you are a, a, a Virginian who's proud of being a Virginian and loves Virginia history and loves Robert E. Lee. It's not okay to write a biography then, unless you're writing a biography about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and you're an admirer of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, then that's okay. You see, it only works for certain people. It only works for the establishment narrative. If you buck that narrative, well then... It doesn't work for you because you're biased. Historians generally and the establishment only point out bias when the bias hurts their positions and their hegemony on power. This is it. This is, you know, David Blight running around that he's somehow some objective historian. He's not. He's a rabid leftist. 
Another Yankee. He's a rabid Yankee leftist. Stephanie McCurry, who writes about the Confederacy, hates it. Hates it. And yet somehow she's supposed to be objective about this thing. So just like newspapers, anything, it used to be newspapers were all biased and people knew it. They knew what the biases were when they got in the newspaper and they were okay with that because they understood what they were getting. We've somehow hidden behind this this, uh, this veil of objectivity that doesn't exist. There was a book written a few years ago uh, in the late 90s by a guy named Novik. It's entitled That Noble Dream, and it's about historians and objectivity, and he says it doesn't exist. But John Lukash, who I'm going to talk about today for a few minutes, in 1967 said this very thing. Objectivity doesn't exist, and it should never exist in the historical profession. So let me get into this. He says, one of the curious symptoms of the cultural chaos and of the intellectual schizophrenia, which is so prevalent in our times, is the persistence of public belief in the ideal of objectivity in historical science, at the same time when subjectivism is running rampant in letters and in arts. So he's saying, we have this weird fascination with historical objectivity when everything is subjective in the letters and the arts. And history is not a science. History is a humanity. History is not, it's not a social science at all. I don't care what John Dewey said because that's where all that comes from. It's not a social science. It's an art. As I am writing the final draft of this chapter, January 1967, the Kennedy-Manchester controversy is in the news. Now, you may not know what that is, but following uh, John F. Kennedy's assassination, a man named Manchester wrote a book about November 1963, and he had access to things that other people didn't have. For example, he interviewed Jacqueline Kennedy. And these tapes are under lock and key until 2067. So nobody's going to see these things for another 45 years. Now, I would hope that somehow I could make it there and actually know what's in those tapes. But I'll be pretty old by that point. Um, So, I mean, it's amazing that these things were locked up. The manuscript of this book is uh, at a college, and it's, it's severely restricted. Just to get to it, it's restricted. Uh, the Kennedy family didn't want it out there because he's critical of the Kennedys. And so this is a big controversy. And the controversy was that, well, we shouldn't have written a history of the assassination this close. This close. And that book came out... Um, uh, not long after this, just a couple years after, a few years after the assassination. So uh, as Lukash is writing this, there's a big controversy about who should be in charge of writing history, and he gets into that. He says, The public reaction to this affair, a tempest in the celebratory teapot, is relevant to what I am writing about. For practically all the people who have made various comments about this controversy seem to agree on one point, or rather, on one shibboleth. They have one misconception in common. It would have been better, they say, if the account of President Kennedy's last days had been left for an objective historian to write in the more distant future. Now, there are all kinds of things wrong with this way of thinking, which is, we must admit, historical thinking of sorts. It is not true that the distance of time will necessarily produce a better perspective for the eventual historian, especially not when the subject, four days of a routine political trip by a president, depends on many small details. It is not true that a professional historian is necessarily more competent 
than a magazine writer in his ability to reconstruct such an episode. All of Manchester's shortcomings notwithstanding, and there are many of them, there is something ludicrously naive in the image, conjured among others by Governor Connolly, of a young, talented Ph.D. working amid his archives, say 30 years hence, an American scholar wearing rimless glasses, perhaps at the University of Texas, writing the definitive history in order to present the nation with the objective historical truth. And all that's capitalized. So he's saying, there's why, why do this newspaperman, this magazine writer, why is he any worse at doing this than some Ph.D. student 30 years from now in the 1990s writing about this, when he's writing this? Of course there wouldn't be. I've, I've been around a lot of PhDs. I've been around a lot of people who are graduate students writing these things or young PhDs. And you know what? They're awful. They don't know how to write. They don't know how to research. They ignore stuff and they're all biased. So what makes it a magazine writer who might actually be a better researcher, who might actually be a better writer than your PhD student? But see, this is what the narrative, well, we got to have objective history. You know, you see, Arthur Schlesinger was somehow objective history. He wasn't. None of them were. None of the big names you can think about in the historical profession have ever been objective. Zero. That's the key. And once people realize this, once you, once you get it through your head that there is no objective history, and it doesn't matter how many voices you have on a documentary about Abraham Lincoln, it's not objective. Doris Kearns Goodwin, for example, is not objective. Alan Gelzo is not objective. None of them are. And so what we should do is recognize that and say, okay, well, this is an interpretation of these events. This is another interpretation of these events. Now, there is truth. You have to arrive at truth somewhere. Uh, we're not just all a bunch of sophists. But the truth usually does come down in some ways to the eye of the beholder. We can look at one event. A historian can look at one event one way, and another historian can look at another way. This is what Jacob Burkhart pointed out in the 19th century. It's what Thucydides understood. When writing the Peloponnesian Wars, he's dependent on his sources, and his sources are biased. So there is no objective history. It doesn't exist. He says this, There is no such thing as a definitive history, because there is no such thing as an objective history. All there is is the last word on the subject. But in history, unlike in other human conventions, including law, the last word on the subject means something very different from the case is now closed. The last word on the subject means rather that the case has been reopened, as indeed it will be reopened again and again in the minds of human beings in our minds. So if you look at just say this, the monographs that have been written by Lee in the last 20 years, starting with the Nolan book on the lost cause, and then you get, uh, you get David Blight and uh, and you get uh, Pryor's book, Reading the Man, and you get Gelzo, and you get the book, uh, The Man Who Would Not Be Washington. or uh, I mean, all these books that have been written by Lee, they're certainly against Lee. That's just opening the word, right? It's just opening the debate again about who is Lee. We still have Douglas Southall Freeman making this case. We still have Clifford Doughty. We still have Robert Self Henry. We still have all these people making their case. These other people are making a case based on what they think the sources actually mean to them. It doesn't mean they're right. It just means they have a different viewpoint. In fact, I can still say they're wrong, even though they're presenting their view. So this is the point. There's never going to be an objective history, ever. And so as the word is now opened on Lee, 
it's now up to other people to write another rebuttal to this, and the word continues to be open. The same thing on Lincoln. The fact that we have this new book um, by uh, Kevin Johnson talking about Lincoln sold slaves, that's important. Right? It's an important study. It's opening the word on Lincoln again. Tom DiLorenzo opened the word on Lincoln when he wrote The Real Lincoln back in the early 2000s. He opened the word on it again. He opened up the case. The case is now opened on Abraham Lincoln. We've got even the National Park Service admitting this in internal emails. You know, uh, our worship of Lincoln, it's got some problems. Now, Lincoln says some things that modern woke society doesn't like. And how are we going to deal with that? Because we have to worship Lincoln. So if we're going to worship Lincoln, we've got to put it in a way that people will still worship Lincoln. You see... The case is never closed when you talk about history. This is what people get frustrated about with history. Because there is no, there is no black and white answer. There's no answer. There's a lot of gray. There's a lot of shades of gray in here. There's no answer. We can look at an event happened on this time. Now, let's talk about why it happened, what happened, how it happened, all those things. There's a lot of details. All that's open to interpretation. Who are the people involved? Who are these people? Are they good people? Are they bad people? All that's open to interpretation. And why do we take the voices of these people over these people? All David Blight did and all these people have done in their books, as just said in Eric Foner, all these people that were maligned are now the people we're going to listen to as the true voice of Reconstruction or the post-war period. All these other people are just bad, evil, racist people. We can't listen to them anymore. They don't matter. That's all they've done. They essentially admit these things were there and these things were going on, but these people were right and these people were wrong. Whereas for years, it was these people were right and these people were wrong. And eventually, it's going to swing back the other way. Some point in the future, as we're looking at all these, you know, you've got, uh, uh, you've got some of these dopes out there writing stories about uh, Confederate monuments and other things. Well, that we've written definitive history on these things. There's no definitive history. And I think 20 or 30 years, maybe, maybe it's going to take longer, 50, 60, 75 years from now, as people actually wake up from this woke slumber that they're in, they're going to go back and look at this stuff and say, this is absolute garbage these people are writing. There's nothing, there's no conclusive proof of any of this. So what Lukash is saying is 100% true. He continues, in our minds, what disturbed me in the Kennedy-Manchester controversy was the particular persistence of the illusion of objectivity when applied to history that the safe and unquestionable truth about something that happened exists somewhere, extraneous as it is to our minds, and that it would be dug up one day by a reputable scientific student of a reputable social science called history in order to appropriately present it in the form of a neat package to be deposited in the libraries of the nation and of the world. But this is a 19th century article of belief. The Oxford English Dictionary defines objectivism, 1872, as, quote, the tendency to lay stress upon what is objective and external to the mind. The philosophical doctrine that knowledge of the non-ego is prior in sequence and in importance to that of the ego, the character in a work of art of being objective. This assumption that the antiseptic separation of the observer from what is observed, or in other words, a separation of subject from object or present from past, is the absolute precondition of truthful observation does not make sense, historically speaking. What is inherent in this assumption is the belief that, for different persons, the same conditions of observing the human past must necessarily lead to the same results, 
a consequence of the categorical application of the method of the natural sciences to history. But this is not the way history works. The insufficiency of these objectivist assumptions was then recognized by certain European thinkers in a variety of fields during the second half of the 19th century. A reactive development that was to influence a number of historians, especially after 1895. I mentioned this development earlier in passing, for it was symptomatic of our deepening historical consciousness. In many ways, the, rec the recognitions of the subjectivists represented an advance over the 19th century illusions of scientific objectivism. But this reaction was not and is not enough. On one very important point, the basic assumptions of the subjectivists have been wrong. I have touched on this point too earlier in this book, but I must repeat it for the sake of argument for this chapter. The point is that according to the subjectivists, the historian is inevitably the product of history. The clearest expression in English of this philosophy exists in the words of the neo-idealist Collingwood. Having recognized that, say, a German historian who, who was born in 1900 would, view, would see the past differently from a French historian who was born in 1800, Collingwood concluded that there is no point in asking which was the right point of view. Each was the only one possible for the man who adopted it. But he's saying that's not necessarily true. You can get beyond that. But certainly looking at a person, a place, and a time when you start talking about history matters, and the people that are writing it are products of their time. David Blight and others are products of their time, but you can find examples where that's not necessarily the case, where people are actually beyond that, and they can look beyond the product of their time. But we cannot escape the product of our environment and people that we're around. We cannot escape those things. We cannot escape... Uh, the way that we have, uh, you know, uh, ingested the environment in which we live. He says, the only one possible. It is on this point that the subjectivists from the early Croce to the later Becker and Beard slid into error. They could not really liberate themselves from the scientific worldview, from Descartes' world divided into subjects and objects, and from Newton's world where causes always and necessarily precede effects, and where the present is always the product of the past. They went wrong not because they were attacking the illusion of objectivity. They were went wrong because, like the objectivists, they were thinking in terms of direct causes of products. They chastened, but still pseudo-Marxist Carr, in his more sophisticated version, pronounced in 1861, falls in the same error. Before you study the historian, study the historical and social environment. There is much truth in this, but it is far from the entire truth. And so he's saying, even though you can look at the environment, there's still more to this. Um, I like the part that he says here when you have cause and effect. History is much more complex than that. And this is something I think we need to understand. And I'm going to stop reading that chapter now. I want You should get this book. But there is much more to this in cause and effect. The Marxist interpretation of history is that there were four revolutions, or there needed to be these revolutionary, violent revolutionary periods that lead to different periods in history. And he's looking at history backwards. We're here, so let's find the causes of how we got here. And there is certainly something to that in many ways, right? You're going to see cause and effect. But you take out the human element and all that. And that's the important part of it. You lose the human-focused element. And so history is not a science. You don't have a hypothesis and say, you know what? 
I think that the hypothesis of why things are like this is because of this. And let's find all the evidence to fit that narrative because that's exactly what the left does. That's exactly what the 1619 Project does. That's what they do on a regular basis. America is racist, so let's find all the things that make it racist. But history is not that. History is a story of a people in place and complex, and there's always surprises. There's always surprises in it. And when we get this very narrow, black and white, cartoonish version of history, or, for example, the problems we have today were caused by Jim Crow, which was caused by the South. Right? That's one thing. If you read The Strange Career of Jim Crow, though, you'll find that in the Jim Crow era in the South, it's uh, or at least leading up to that, the South was a little different than what you would conceptualize in your mind. In fact, there wasn't really any racial segregation in the South other than just things that just existed because of common mores. But there wasn't anything legal there, and blacks and whites mingled and were around each other a lot. I'll never forget, I read a history textbook. It was the Goldfield uh, U.S. History textbook, and he actually made this point. I was shocked because basically he read C. Van Woodward's A Strange Career of Jim Crow. But people are trying to avoid that now. The 1890s was brutal. The 1880s was brutal. Southerners were just executing black people left and right. When you read the actual evidence, though, it's not the case. Even people that were against some of the racial stratification and some of the abuse that was taking place recognized that that stuff didn't exist. I'll never forget, if you, if you go out and watch the film Intruders in the Dust, which I've recommended before, it's a William Faulkner film. You can get it free on YouTube, I think, 1930s. Uh, there's a scene at the end of the film where the man who was wrongfully accused and was going to be lynched comes in the office and pays his money. He's a black man, pays his money to a white lawyer. And if you look out, they kind of show Mississippi. You go out there, and you've got just black and white people mingling around each other in the streets, no big deal. You would not see that in Vermont. You would not see that in New Hampshire. You would not see that in Massachusetts. You would not see that in many of your northern cities because they already had segregation in those cities. Segregation was born in northern cities. But you did see it in the south. That's not the image we get. So you see the objective historian that doesn't exist is not going to present that picture. They're going to present the picture that fits them. And they're going to present the picture that works for their interpretation of the history and their biases are going to come through. So you have to be very careful. There is no objective history. Uh, when you look at all these mainstream historians, they're all careerists. They'll have a career to uphold, and they're going to do what they need to do to advance their career. People like me, who have said what I've said and done what I've done, did not advance a career in the historical profession. We would not have been hired or anything. It's, it's clear. Not have been hired in your mainstream universities because they do not tolerate dissent. Because they want the last word. And if I get hired and I have access to things that the same type of things they have and I start producing work like they do, well, then I could have the last word. But it isn't the last word. It's the, it's the reopening of the word. They just don't want to deal with that. They're very thin-skinned. So I love this, uh, this chapter by Lukash. And I think we have to understand that. If you're going into history, even if you're an amateur, if you're just reading history, understand that there is no objective history, and you do have to understand the people and the place, and that's important. Um, and you have to understand their ideas as well. Ideas, as Joe Biden says. You have to understand the ideas around this. All right. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.